Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. When I started this project was that, you know, my most, the important thing I'm selling is not blankets in the sense that more than the customer wants to feel like they're helping a shelter animal. Like that's really what I'm giving them an opportunity to do, not really to buy a blanket on like a deep level too. The Product Startup, episode 24. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked with Tamar Lucien, one of the founders of Mental Happy. Mental Happy is a service that sends a personalized cheer box with an assortment of tools, treats, handmade crafts, and a personalized note curated for the recipient to help them feel better. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, make sure to check out episode 23. So before we get started, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes. CCY Hypnotic wrote, This is a truly interesting podcast that gets great guests that actually contribute to the topic at hand. Philip does a great job not only hosting, but getting genuinely useful information from the guests and contributing his vast knowledge as well. You should definitely be listening. Hey, thanks again for leaving a comment on iTunes. Seriously appreciate everyone that writes in and sends me notes and your feedback. I hope that you notice that I use it every week to make the show better. For example, you might have noticed this week the volume on the show is a bit louder, uh, and that's based on just a listener's comment saying that the volume of the podcast was considerably lower than some of the other podcasts in the genre. So thanks again, everybody, for writing in. Now on to today's episode. So today I'm joined by Terry Lynn. He's the founder of Forever Home Blankets. The company sells high-quality blankets for people to use at home, the office, or on the road. And for every blanket that he sells, one is donated to an animal shelter in need. Terry raised $3,500 on Kickstarter to get the first batch of inventory in Vietnam. And today we talk about how he set up his company and went through the whole process. So let's get started. Hi, Terry. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have a really interesting story. You're the founder of Forever Home Blankets, and it's kind of a similar model to Tom Shoes. So for every blanket a customer buys, you donate a blanket to a homeless animal in need. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got started with that? Sure. So this whole thing started in 2015. Uh, The idea didn't really come to reality until earlier this year. But so in 2015, uh, I've been kind of on my own, doing my own business for about one or two years. Things were doing okay, but weren't that great. And so I started uh, volunteering at an animal rescue just to kind of get my head off the business and have some kind of recreational time that fulfilled me inside. And so after a year of volunteering, I realized that, you know what, maybe there's something we could do with this because I feel like a lot of things, like when you start on the internet, you maybe you try to chase money, you try to chase what your friends say. And in the end, like if you don't do something that makes you happy and that finds you, that you also find fulfilling, I think it's just difficult to really play like a long ball game uh, doing that too. So, uh, you know, animal rescue is something I really care about. And so the idea came about when I was looking at items to donate, right? And so you Google anything online, you'll see like top 10 lists to donate uh, to animal shelters. And so I live in Vietnam here where textiles is a really big industry. And so on the list, we're always like blankets, comfort items, because a lot of these animals, especially dogs, uh, when they're dropped off at a shelter, 
uh, these shelters have no budgets. They only have a concrete floor. So I don't know where you live, but imagine you're in New York, Boston, uh, during the winter, sleeping on the concrete, like how much that sucks, right? And so, especially for animals like these that already have some behavioral issues, uh, when you know when they don't get enough sleep, they don't get enough rest, they can't be themselves. And basically, in some ways, it indirectly helps their adoptability too, because when they can relax, sure. uh, p- potential adopters can see what they're actually like around other dogs, around people, and then the chances for them uh, to get out of the shelter is a lot higher too. And it can keep them from getting euthanized uh, kind of in a long ball way. That's really amazing. Not only that you're doing that for something outside of your business and you're, you've got this nonprofit angle to it and helping out dogs. I've got dogs myself, so I could definitely relate. Yeah. Both of the dogs that we've adopted came from shelters and I, so I totally understand where you're coming from. And you touched on something that we haven't really hit on enough here on the show. I think this concept of doing something that fulfills you in ways that maybe money can't. I've thought about that a lot more recently. You can get into the habit of doing things that are financially the right decision, but you haven't taken the time to sit down to think that, you know, what completes you in other ways, what help fuels you. Because we haven't really discussed this that much in detail, can you kind of get into that a little bit more to say how you came across that idea or was it just something that, you know, you jumped out of bed one morning and said, hey, I need to do this? Yeah, sure. So it all started probably in 2011. Uh, Back before this whole journey, I used to work at a bank uh, on a trading floor. And basically, my day would start at, I'd wake up at like 6, get in the office by 6.30, and then you leave home like at 7 or 8, right? And so basically, what you do is you just sit there on a trading floor all day. You're you know, looking at numbers, looking at spreadsheets, and then you just collect money in your bank account. But you're not really adding any value to the world in the sense mm-hmm. that like, yep. you know, beyond just pushing papers, right? And so I eventually left that space and started... Uh, kind of doing my own things, right? And I tried, you know, a couple of things here and there. Try because, like, when I first started, it was kind of in the internet marketing space, where like you kind of follow bloggers, listening to what they do, and you kind of just follow the trend. You don't really know what you're doing. And it wasn't until like a year or two, and I was like, "What am I doing? Like, why would I want to build something that, you know, is just either a another job or b something that doesn't fulfill me?" Because that's the whole point why I left uh, being a banker too, right? So I think there's a guy. I think you know Gary Vaynerchuk. Like, he yep. had a video that actually just came out this week that was really good. Uh, I think he was saying like, you know, the niches that you're interested in now go wide and deep. And because you can reach everyone on the internet, um, you know, if you work on something that you enjoy, you'll naturally work harder, which becomes a variable of success. And because, you know, you're working on your free time, you know, you're doing it, you're always thinking about it, you know, it gives you an advantage in some ways too. And that's how you end up making money in the end too. And so, you know, this is still an early thing for me, but I feel like, you know, I go on the shelter walks every morning from sure. like 8.30 to like 10 and you know, it's it's fun. I enjoy it. And then, you know, I get to meet people in the space and I can talk about what I do. And I feel like there's a lot of, uh, you know, congruence with kind of my personal lifestyle and the business side. So, you know, this is kind of something I'm looking forward to, uh, to kind of keep building for the next year or two also. That's a great story. And I really appreciate you sharing that. It's home for me. Yeah. Recently laid off working for oil and gas about a month ago. And until now, I've always chose the right thing to do, quote, you know, the right thing for the family, the right thing for myself from a financial perspective. And now that I have some free time because, you know, we've got some savings, I can kind of take a step back. I'm definitely doing some of that soul searching to say, okay, what do I really want to focus on? So one of those things is obviously the product startup. Yeah, but, exactly. But what, you know, what are the, some of those others? And so that that's very interesting. It's, it's a good talking to somebody that kind of lives that now. Yeah. I think one thing to add is that, I guess like there's a lot of people that say, oh, if you follow your passion, like you shouldn't, you should or shouldn't do it. But I think that within that space, like 
like you should look at it, but you should also find some way to add value in a unique angle, right? So it's like the blanket side is like, yeah, it's a business, but it's not really about selling blankets. It's about, you know, helping shelter animals that are freezing at night uh, to stay warm, right? So I think like, you know, when you think about your passions, how does it align with the business proposition that kind of solves a problem or, you know, provides entertainment for someone in like a real tangible way that you can keep building it to? Because I think a lot of like, internet stuff i guess like you know maybe this product side this is kind of like internet market side where like people become like life coaches it's kind of like really kind of like cheesy in some ways too sure so it's like it's just like sometimes i hear this i just like want to cringe when i hear like people say they're a life coach and so i think a lot of it has to be like i think like gary says like how well do you know yourself and you know how well do you know who you wish you should be and like knowing that gap is kind of kind of you know helping you guide your direction as the compass where you should go in life too so and the thing is like you know we could talk about it here but i think everyone has to figure out on their own like i can say this is my story but you know what i do may or may not be the right thing for someone else to do too and that comes down to like the self-awareness that he's been hitting on the past year or two that i really started to kind of take a take awareness of too because like i realized that you know what i enjoy hanging out with animals shelter animals since i was a kid and you know might as well keep doing this uh, as a living all very good points, very good messages. Why do you think yeah. the next step was blankets? Yeah, so the first business I started actually about two years ago was actually men's wallets. Um, okay. So I had five models. And I guess like the marketing and the branding wasn't that well thought out. It was like my first business. And I kind of like closed shop on it last year. And so uh, the lessons from that I learned was that um, you know having a simpler product uh, especially if you're not a designer or you're just kind of step getting your feet wet on this, like usually makes things easier. So sure. those are like blankets, you know, it's a simple textiles. You have a certain dimension and sewing. And once you pick the fabric type, you have different colors and it's fairly easy to get off the ground versus like, say, if you want your own, you know, plastic case for GoPros where you need like injection molding and like all this like prototyping stuff to get off the ground too. So uh, basically just, you know, for me, uh, it was something that shelter animals needed and kind of just easy to get off the ground so it's kind of like a you know kind of win-win i guess to start out too so and in vietnam a lot of textiles are made here so that was just kind of a perfect scenario to start making that here too great yeah and we'll probably get into some of that detail in a little bit so when you thought about your blanket did you just go about it to say hey this is the business model that i want i want to be able to give away one blanket for every blanket sold and that kind of drove some of the decisions that you had a little bit, yeah. I actually read the book by Blake Mikowski, the founder of Tom's. I think it's called okay. Start Something That Matters. And at first I thought, well, it's kind of cheesy. Like I'm just copying Tom's in some ways. But then I'm like, well, you know, this is something I really care about. And maybe it's just my own self-doubt that's kind of making me feel that way too. So so I think that like, goes back to what I said earlier. Like, are you making something that you can really enjoy and be proud of too? And I think this is uh, a yes for me right now. I just got to get past some of the mental stuff uh, as I keep building this too. And that's just one of those ongoing struggles that everyone that's starting a business has, I imagine. Yeah. And and I think the thing is like, there's a charity angle where we're helping animals. Like, is it right to make money off this? Like, I almost feel like sometimes like guilty thinking that, but it's, it's the, this whole thing is only like five months old. So it's still like kind of a fit way, you know, thing in the works as we go along. Well, so tell me what came first, the Kickstarter or you starting to produce blankets? Uh, so the first thing that actually came first was just an Instagram account, uh, just getting people to sign up for the mailing list. Uh, so basically, I uh, started posting you know, animal photos on, the, on Instagram, either some that I took at the shelter myself or kind of reposting other people and giving them credit, uh, just to kind of see what... Uh, to, to test my Instagram bio to see what kind of the response is from the market. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I did, I started this probably like in February 
of 2016, and the Kickstarter didn't launch until June. So basically, the first four months, I was just collecting emails, uh, and then the email list probably was around 500, 600 by the time we launched. And then, because um, what, what happened was when the first business I started, I made the products first. I got like the packaging, the shipping. You know, I shipped all the freight to the U.S. and then I started the marketing. Like, and that's probably like the wrong way to start, just because you know, unless you have deep pockets and you can kind of sustain that first year to really push things through. But otherwise, it's just you know, the work is to get the customer either way. So you might as well do what you can upfront, whether that's getting you know, pre-orders, email subscriptions that you can contact them with and just to test the ideas with them and see what the response is to, right? So what I did was after I had an Instagram account, you know, I found suppliers here, got one or two samples and just took a bunch of photos with those just to see like, you know, what were people commenting on? What were they liking? And I noticed that the signs were that uh, there, I got these emails like, hey, thank you for what you're doing. You know, I also volunteer at a shelter and I totally know what you're going through. Like these animals totally need this. And those are like the earliest signals that I knew this thing probably had a little bit of legs. And whereas like the business of, before I started was like, it was kind of like crickets for the first few months too. So I think the key is that like if you're designing your own product, like if you can get your prototypes out there, whether it's designs like, you know, on paper, on a photo, like if you can just get some market signals to see what's coming back and A, you know, to see if you're even targeting the right people. And sure. B, what are they saying? And C, you know, how can you iterate from there too, right? All very good point. And I've actually gone through the same thing with the product startup and a couple of businesses I used to work for where you're t- probably targeting the wrong audience because if you're getting, like you said, if you're getting crickets back, if you're not hearing anything back from your target market, then one of two things need to change either your product or your audience. Yeah, exactly. Like right now, like I know my market is like mostly women that are 30 to 45 that, you know, have a pet or do volunteer work themselves. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out what's the most efficient way to get to them, you know, as the next step. Because I know that from the emails I've gotten, you know, I take the emails, I run them through Facebook, I kind of stalk them a little bit just to see like what they're like. Because I guess those are like kind of your early adopters and you want to see, sure. you know, if there's any correlations with that, with the first 10 people versus the next 20 people and what kind of the terminologies they're using when they're describing your product or what you do. And then kind of re- regurgitate that as your future marketing copy too. Yeah, very good points. Before we get ahead of ourselves, because I do definitely want to talk about marketing some, I wanted to kind of go through the process of you creating this blanket and selling it. So you you created this prototype and you tested it through your Instagram accounts and your email list and it helped validate. Did you make any decisions on the design or the how the blanket functioned during this time? Yeah. Well, I want to say Instagram validated it because... I don't think anything's really validated until people are willing to pay for it in some ways. And so like to get to that stage, you can either do like a pre-order, you know, family and friends or just try a Kickstarter, which is what I did too. And so when I went into the Kickstarter, I was like, all right, you know, if I don't hit this goal of $1,000, which is super low, like really, really low, like then it's probably not worth doing because if you can't even raise $1,000, like why would I just keep, you know, doing this? Sure. Too? And I probably would have thought of something else too, right? So, but I, th- but I guess like if you're doing different products like electronics, the curve to get to that point is a lot different. So um, I think when it comes to like your product design and everything, like blankets is really, really easy, right? Like there's pretty much standard sizes in the industry. There's like throw size, twin size, king size, queen size, you know, kind of maybe like, you know, 10 maximum, right? Whereas like you look at like a coffee mug or, you know, even like a computer mouse, you have like all these dozens and hundreds of different designs too. So, you know, luckily like blankets I chose was relatively simple and I guess it was kind of by decision so that, you know, I didn't have to spend that much time on product just because, it's kind of simple in its own ways. And it's really about the story and spreading that message too, I think, in my particular case. And did you have to go through any types of, any research into what type of blanket people want, like in the material that they're looking for or colors or washability or anything like that? 
Yeah. So the big point that I looked at was kind of like airline blankets, because you know how airplanes always give you blankets that are kind of throw, they're pretty much throw size, which is basically 50 by 60 inches. So this is a blanket that you can use on the couch. You know, if you're going camping, you're in the car at night, you know, it's cold, but it's, it's big enough that it can keep you warm, but it's not like a bed blanket. That's kind of hard to lug around uh, everywhere you go to. And so the material I chose was fleece in particular that, uh, wool just isn't really good material. And I think like some of the kind of animal, you know, welfare people are vegans and they don't like having wool. So, okay. uh, Fleece is kind of just all polyester. It's easy to wash. It's really light. Uh, and so it's easy to cut too. Now, that was what one thing um, a shelter told me. Because before I started this, I actually emailed like 20 or 30 shelters. being like, hey, do you guys actually need blankets? Uh, you know, how, What do you guys need the most in terms of supplies? And so they were like, yeah, definitely. And so one of them said, um, because fleece is easy to cut, whereas like say some thicker material with stuffing in it, uh, you know, animal tear up, they could get all right. messy. Shreds. Uh, yeah, exactly. Fleece is really simple. They can cut it up for like smaller dogs or cats. Whereas like, you know, something 50 by 60 inches, you know, not every dog or cat needs something that big. It's, so it's kind of cool how, you know, even if we give one blanket, it could help two or three or four or five, depending on, you know, the animal that could use it too. So very good tips. Good idea. Actually emailing all the shelters to getting their perspective because someone could just assume to say, Hey, I'm giving away all this product. They'd be happy with whatever that I'm sending yeah. their way. Exactly. And it was kind of an early way to reach out to kind of build some partnerships that like, hey, you know, I'm launching this new thing. It's still very new, but down the line, would you be willing to help share it on your social? And then, you know, every sale we get, you know, if your customer enters the notes, uh, we can, you know, direct these to you too. So in some ways, like, you know, I'm thinking about like setting up some referral program in some ways where like, you know, if they can help promote it, we can track what they're bringing in and just they have a very transparent way of benefiting from it too. Uh, kind of like a win-win-win type of scenario. Yeah, so that's really interesting. If you can get people from the nonprofit to link back to your site, then you can get give them credit for the sale and maybe they're the ones that get the blanket for the sale. Exactly. Yeah. So like say like you partner with 10 shelters, you know, each of them brings in 20 orders, like you'll know which shelter because then they'll directly benefit from promoting this, which is what I'm trying to kind of figure out too. But like the logistics of setting that up is still probably like a ways away because I'm still in the first production run and all that stuff. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I'm trying to think about ways to like grow this faster uh, as the year progresses. So on the back of my mind. I guess a really low tech way of doing that would just look at your analytics and see who your referrers are. And then you could say X percent is coming from this nonprofit. And so I can donate X percent of my blankets to this nonprofit. And it won't be a one for one type relationship, but at least you'll have the rough ballpark. Exactly. Yeah. And for those that are like having websites, I think like some shopping carts have like referral programs that have like links where you can track more directly into the cart. But I think I think the technology there is just figuring out how to execute it uh, in a right way that actually makes sense. Because one thing is that, you know, if I have 10 shelters that sell one blanket a month, mailing them one blanket is actually kind of not efficient just because I have to pay shipping 10 times versus, you know, one shelter that brings 10 blankets, I ship them one package that's kind of more Sure. that way too. So I'm trying to figure out like, you know, where's the balance there and having that make sense. Maybe you something like what Amazon does when it, if you're selling a product on Amazon, they'll hold your payment until a certain date or until they have a certain amount of money in your account. Yeah, exactly. No, interesting. Let's talk about the process of throwing up a Kickstarter. You mentioned that you threw up something with a relatively low goal and it got funded pretty quickly. Can you talk about the process of uh, just starting one and publicizing it and you know, any tips for people that are looking to do the same? Yeah, sure. So before this one, I actually had 
a failed one I tried to do the year before well, like laptop cases because I was doing wallets and I tried to do laptop cases and my goal was like way too high and I didn't do enough pre-marketing. I was asking for like 30,000 and I only ended up like 3,000 or something like that. And so what happens with, with crowdfunding is that it's easy to see that, oh, this guy put up a campaign and then he got like, you know, $50,000 in like a day, right? But you don't see like the six months ahead of people that are, you know, putting in the work, talking to journalists, talking to bloggers, getting samples made, you know, and just the night and grind. Because it's like a tip of the iceberg thing, right? Like the Kickstarter is a tip of the iceberg where like, you know, you already built up this momentum and that's just the event, right? It's like process first event, Kickstarter right. is event, but the process is the day in, day out of the six months, you know, even up to two years beforehand uh, that you're doing that too. So I guess like more nitty gritty stuff, uh, basically Kickstarter, for those that don't know, is a place where people can pledge money for a creative project. So it's not really a pre-order in the sense that most projects that go on there in terms of physical products aren't in production yet. They're there to raise money to do their first run. So the creators have made a sample or a working prototype. You know, they have a video. Uh, if you pledge, you know, $100, here's what you'll get. $200, here's what you'll get. They'll have different reward tiers. And basically, as a backer, you can choose what to support. And then usually uh, after the campaign succeeds, if it succeeds, uh, mm-hmm. so, so I guess I guess Kickstarter is all or nothing thing. I forgot to say that too. So if you, you have to get 100% of your goal or more to get funded. But if you hit anything under 100, uh, none, of, none of the money on the backers gets charged. So it's kind of like a gamification way of doing this too. So uh, if you're funded, uh, great Kickstarter will send you the money and then you just kind of got to start production uh, and like that. Now, obviously, that's very just gleaming over that because you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into different types of production too. But uh, generally speaking, like if you back a project on Kickstarter, it probably won't deliver until six months, uh, if not longer, just because they got to put in the order in and then put all the products to do quality control, put on a boat, you know, ship it to the US or wherever, take it off the boat, take it to a truck, put it the truck to a warehouse and then have the sure. orders go in the warehouse. It's just like a really, really long, complicated process that's, uh, you know, a lot of people say it's probably not worth the money and it's probably true, but, you know, it does help getting your first production run off the ground rather than putting your own money uh, up front, which is what I did the first time around too. So now it's like, you know, I have this project. I know I have, you know, my first 150 customers that have already paid their supporters so I can just keep pushing this ball forward. To kind of touch on something you said, you mainly raised the Kickstarter to validate your idea and to make sure that maybe the market was still there because the relative funds that you raised, you know, the relative cost was about $3,500, which is probably not enough to get a whole production run started, or at least it's only just a fraction of a run. Can you maybe talk about a little bit about what kind of work you did up front for your Kickstarter and maybe why you chose that low of a goal and do you recommend that for other people that have products they're looking to launch yeah i would say the one mistake with kickstarter was that it's a lot of guys on kickstarter whereas like indiegogo has a lot more women so okay. i think uh with something like this where i noticed the instagram uh, account had a lot of women um i probably should have went with indiegogo but uh, i'm not entirely sure i mean it's hindsight 2020 right no, that's, so that's an interesting point yeah, so I guess I guess it depends on the product you end up making. Uh, but for my case, my supplier was pretty flexible with uh, the minimum order, just because they uh, they're a pretty big supplier here locally, and so they always have kind of fabric uh, laying around that we can like repurpose and like you know recut, resew into a blanket. So they weren't too strict on like the minimums uh, starting okay. out too. So I was kind of nice. lucky in that sense because most of the times you got to buy at least like you know what a thousand just to get any decent quote. Like if you're asking 520 supplier, like they're going to overcharge you. And sure. so I guess like when, when it comes to, you know, if you're going to do like a crowdfunding campaign, you got to think about that, you know, 
how realistic is this? And you got to calculate your shipping costs, your freight, and the fulfillment things that all add up into the project too. So Absolutely. And especially for products that have an upfront cost, like a mold fee or a setup fee or something like exactly. that, where, you, where you're having a huge cost. So it's really interesting for you to, or good on you to pick a product that was pretty easy to start, like you said. Yeah. I mean, so for me, basically like a blanket is around like $4 to make for me. And then we make two, right? So it's $8 in terms of like cost of goods sold. And then your landed cost for freight, warehousing, packaging, fulfillment is probably like another eight-ish, nine-ish with free shipping. So, you know, it ends up being like 30-ish percent margin, at least right now, unless I raise the price a little bit uh, later in the year because I might have to. Just because, but it's enough to like get the first round off the ground and then if I sell out the first round, I can buy a second round essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because then there's like, then that becomes like, you know, you make your first round, then how do you push the snowball? And usually like you got to reinvest your profit in inventory. And that's like a whole nother game depending on your product margins too. Which also goes back to the price you set for your Kickstarter too, right? Because if you set, you know, a goal where you only get 10%, maybe you sell a thousand units, that 10% of a thousand units may or may not be enough for your second production run. And that's where like the cash flow game gets a little bit tricky and it's kind of a, Something, I guess, for another podcast down the line. All very good points with that. So when you were giving away, or I shouldn't say giving away, but when you when backers pledge money to your project on Kickstarter, you typically give them something in return. So the value that you were getting from your backers, was that more or less than the cost of the blanket? I was like probably more because there are probably like 10 people who are like, you know what, don't send me my blanket, just donate mine. So there's two people that bought the 10 blanket package, which is, I think I, I had it at 199 and they were like, okay. hey, just donate all my 20 blankets and I don't want it. So wow, I think that's it's, really it's nice. interesting that you can, you know, you find these people. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of cool actually though. So leading up to the Kickstarter, you said that, you know, people have to do all this outreach. Obviously you have to talk to bloggers and whoever to promote your Kickstarter. Can you talk a little bit about what you did? Yeah. So what I did was I went on Instagram. I looked at everyone who followed me, who they followed. And I just started making this huge list of probably five or 600 blogs slash pet accounts slash influencers. And basically every day I would just use Thunderbird and Mail Merge. Um, so if, for those who don't know what Mail Merge is, is you know if you have a list of emails and names, instead of mailing each email one by one, you can use a tool that kind of sends it for you and mm-hmm. it'll look personalized for everyone too. So basically sure. I was just doing 100 a day with Thunderbird. It's a Mozilla tool. And so what's surprising is that the response rate wasn't actually that high, which kind of had me worried because... I think it's pretty um, normal. <laughs> it's pretty normal. Yeah, exactly. I guess like one to 2% response rate is pretty high. And then there were some that are like, well, you know, we only do paid product reviews and blah, blah. I'm like, well, I haven't even launched yet. So let's revisit this later. Sure. So, um, but you know, but once in a while, like, I know I had probably like three or four blogs that shared it. So, uh, which is kind of cool. And there was one big account, I think Monty the cat, he's a Danish cat. I think he has like 300,000 followers on Facebook and he's kind of like, uh, has some handicap because I guess those are the most popular accounts. If you like Little Bub or all these, you know, different dog or cat scan, like the ones that seem to be disabled are the most popular on the internet for some reason too. So uh, basically, I was looking for these accounts, and you know, five or six of them got back to me, and so that was enough to kind of push the ball. But it was definitely less than I hoped for. But I think you know, it's especially I guess for like an influencer, if you're just an idea with not much traction, it's kind of hard to promote too. So. You know, maybe I'll revisit them six months down the line when I've got more traction, kind of momentum with this thing too. Yeah. And so would you recommend, uh, you know, halving that list and launching with half and then approaching the other half maybe once you have a product that's uh, 
that's more fleshed out or was or would you just resend everything to the first list and say hey you didn't respond to my to my initial email to back a kickstarter but now we actually have a product yeah i think i'll probably just follow and be like hey here's where we were six months ago here's where we are now and just see where it goes but i think for someone starting out you should definitely just email everyone you can just because you know the risk of them saying no is pretty low and most people if they say no they just won't reply so there's really like no risk to kind of you know spread your message as far as you can too so obviously there's like you know the effort if you're a one-man show versus you know someone with a team but I think like a lot of it is like pre-Kickstarter is like how much you can push until the event and get funded as fast as possible. Great tips there. So you've got all these backers now and you've got some money in your account and you validated. So I use the word validated because to me, validation is just testing. Yeah. The product development process that I'm used to, you're just constantly validating. You're every like two or three steps, you're going back to the market or going back to the customer to confirm that you're in the right track. So you're not spending money in the wrong direction. You've basically validated that people want what you're looking for. You've placed an order with the manufacturer. Well, first, let's talk about maybe even selecting the manufacturer. You said that you obviously have some time in Vietnam. Can you talk a little bit about how you went through and, and picked which manufacturer to go with? Yeah, I would say the number one thing about manufacturing, no matter where you are, is be able to go physically and see them. Just yep. because like you're not going to be able to go into Alibaba and like find some random supplier, you know, wire them like 5K and expect something picture perfect to come up to your doorstep. Like that just doesn't happen, right? And so like whether it's in China, you know, South America, Asia, you know, North America, like you know, to be able to go there and see who they are, what they look like, you know, how they treat their employees, how they treat you when you go there too, is a big way to see kind of how their relationship grows from there too. So luckily for my supplier, they were like probably like 45 minutes out the city. And so I also speak Mandarin, which happened to be uh, what they spoke too. So instead of speaking English where they weren't that strong, we just spoke in Mandarin and kind of uh, hash out the whole deal uh, from there. Nice. Yeah, there's a huge leg up in being able to meet with your manufacturer. I totally agree. Those are one-on-one yeah. -on -one relationships that yeah. you know you can basically put trust in someone uh, you know, once you meet them face-to-face -face and they get a better feel for you and they feel that you know once you spend time with them, you're investing into that relationship and they're going to do the same, I guess, versus if you're just sending a ton of emails and you're just a door kicker, so to speak, or someone that's just kind of going through and trying to get the best deal. Yeah. And if you like imagine the sampling process, like, you know, changing this, changing that over email, and then they got to mail you a sample, you got to <laughs> right, it, change right. it. Like, like just, it, just, it just wastes like six months. Like I had a friend who was trying to get into like the weed market, or, like, cause I guess it was legalized. He's trying to make like some storage thing early January. And I'm like, you know, this Chinese New Year soon, you better get moving. He's like, yeah, I'll get it in two weeks. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll it's going to take you six months. And like last week I checked and he said, like, yeah, I'm still sampling. So wow. that's, what, that's what happens when you live in different countries and you know, it just takes forever. And I guess like a lot of times, depending on your supplier, like if you're just, you know, a, a guy starting out, like, and they're a big company, like they, you know, why should they give you the time? And that's like, you know, about your skills and, you know, kind of gets like your image in some ways and showing how serious you are in actually developing this product too, I think. So it's like, you know, if you approach them, do you actually know what they do, what they can do, or at least have an idea of what you want? You know, how much of a design do you have? Do you have a working prototype? You know, do you have like a CAD or whatever? Like, how can you show that you're actually really serious about this too? Because that'll help you kind of when they kind of size you up too, in some ways down the line. Yeah, absolutely. So the, some of the manufacturers that I've used in China, I came in with a really high order that was broken up into, you know, multiple shipments. And that was one of the ways that I got people to listen to me because otherwise, like you said, everyone is just out there looking 
for a deal and people don't take you seriously if, if you come when, yeah, with a exactly. 500 unit minimum orders. Yeah, there's my friend uh, that does, uh, he's done like probably like 15 Kickstarters and they've all been like funded. And so he's he was saying wow. his trick is that he tells the supplier that, hey, look, uh, I need a quote for at least a thousand, right? Because if you ask for a quote for a hundred, you're never going to get the real quote. So he's asked, he was saying, he's like, you always ask for a quote for a thousand just to get the real price. And then you say, look, I need to order a sample order of 200 units or 100 units uh, yep. for, you know, the quality control checks. And then you, 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 he, the way he says it is that, look, we'll quote for a thousand samples for a hundred, but it's got to pass by my marketing team in the US and the UK before we can put in the final order. So it looks better than saying, hey, I just want to order a hundred. Like, what's the price, right? So it's the same one hundred, but it makes you look a little bit stronger in some ways too, and it gives you out because then if you say, "Hey, if the hundred units suck, you just don't go through with the order too." So right. it's kind of interesting when I heard that. Um, that most where most people think like, "Well, you know, I don't want to be dishonest and say, you know, I can't order a thousand, but I think it's it's you know, it's not really the best way, but it keeps keeps you from having too much downside risk. I think, especially if you're just starting out. Bottom line is if you're looking to grow your company, you're going to have to place those large orders eventually. Exactly. And so it's yeah. not really a lie. You're just you're prolonging exactly. you're staggering your shipment out. Yeah. And you might as well get the real quote instead of screwing yourself with asking for a low number and getting like a super high unit cost too. Right. You've selected your manufacturer now and you have this really good relationship because you're in country with them. You've raised some funds. Did you bring some funds over from your previous job? Yeah, so part of it, uh, so we raised 3.5. Uh, Kickstarter is wiring me about 3.2 just because they take like 8% off the right. top for you know credit cards and their fees. So uh, I'm putting in another like 2K or so to get this off the ground. So, you know, it's it's better than putting in like 5K of my own money. But, you know, with 2K, I'm happy enough since, you know, there's already people buying on the store now a little bit. I just launched it this week. Uh, and so there's also backers that are on board also too. So, yeah. Great. Probably the next step is a much bigger marketing push once you start yeah. having some inventory. Yeah. Well, actually, the next step is right now I'm trying to figure out is packaging. I haven't figured out uh, that side yet because apparently uh, the way you roll a blanket, if you roll it like in a cylinder, it's more, it takes up more volume on freight and shipping. So it's a little bit more expensive because there's the dimensional weight, I guess. Whereas mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. if I fold it flat, like in a square, it's actually cheaper. And I'm just trying to figure out like, all right, well, if I fold it flat, how do I package it so that it doesn't get rumpled during shipping? And like that, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. Do I put in a box or just a poly bag or all that stuff? Sure. So this is, this is, then they go to like, well, if you're designing like a drone, like, you know, it's you packaging that must be a whole nother, you know, another thing it's to figure out. It's a different project, right? Exactly. With all the different parts. Yeah, yeah. And usually if you have, you know, a small order to start out with, your packaging minimums are really high, right? So for example, like, my first run, I'm buying probably 400 blankets, but for packaging, I probably need to buy like you know 2,000 bags or boxes just because no one will sell you 400 bags because of the minimum. It doesn't make sense for them to. They will. They'll just be triple the price, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you might, so you might, might as well buy 2,000 if you're going to use it that way, anyways, too. Right. So. No, that's a good point. Are you going to be selling this retail at all, or is it going to be straight online sales? Uh, straight online sales for now. The, the retail model is a little bit tricky because I think at this price point, it's a little bit difficult just because if each blanket is like four and I got to donate one, it's like eight. And if I'm selling it for like 30-ish, that's like 30% of it. If I sell at wholesale for like 15, it just the math isn't going to work too. So, um, Yeah, retailers want to make you know typically 50% or whatever exactly. uh, yeah. off, off the retail price. It just eats into you. 
and and honestly, the consumer that's walking by on a shelf at Bed Bath and Beyond, and they see a, a blanket for let's say forty dollars, they might not go up to it and read the fine print to say, oh, what? But wait, there's this nonprofit angle to it. Exactly, and um, I feel like it's just better to own the customer channel in terms of like whether it's their email on your yeah. own social accounts like just having that ownership instead of relying on some retailer and it's not to say that retailers are bad i mean certainly you know they can move a lot of volume it's just kind of starting out uh, is it the right move for you like everyone has to kind of take a closer look at that sure until you hit it as big as tom's to where you've got a, a brand name and people say hey i want one of those blankets because i really believe in their cause you're not going exactly. to drive people to the store and i think that's one thing that retailers look for as well the brick and mortar retailers is is your branded product going to help bring in customers into my store? Because ultimately, they want to increase that traffic. Exactly. And especially like new products that, mm-hmm. you know, if they move out the door fast, it's easy. You kind of get the leverage. Like, I guess, like when Tom started, I think in the book, he was saying uh, this Nordstrom guy called the Tom's office. And then, um, so Blake picked it, right? The founder, he's like, you know, the guy's like, hey, I'm from Nordstrom. I need 100 pairs of shoes, like right now. Like, no exceptions. We're Nordstrom sending out. He's like, hey, we don't have any, right? He's like, all right, let me tackle the sales department. So he passes the phone to the guy next to him, which is like a 25 year old <laughs> intern. And he's like, hey, what do you need? He's like, we need 100 pairs of shoes. We're Nordstrom. He's like, no, sorry, we don't have any. All right, let me talk to like, you know, the accounts guy and they pass to another intern and the guy's like look the first guy you talked to was a founder the second guy you talked to was an intern and i'm also an intern so like we just don't have any shoes and the guy's like oh you guys really are that small huh and so like it's kind of a funny story it's funny when i read that too but but i guess it shows that like you know if your products can move like people will knock on your door too so yeah no absolutely yeah. no the, and the reason i asked was because as you're going through designing a package you need to kind of keep that in mind if it's going to be sitting on a shelf or hanging from a hang tag or yeah. if you just mainly need to worry about it surviving the shipment and not being rumpled, which is obviously valid for you know a blanket at your price point. One thing that helps is look at what competitors are doing, mm-hmm. I guess, or like other people in the market, like how are they packaging, and kind of just seeing if you can stand out. Because if you're going to do retail, like your packaging has to stand out from everything else, right? So it's like if you have like you know unboxing videos on YouTube, like I think like Dollar Shave Club has really cool unboxing. I think Harry's too. He's kind of just, you know, go on YouTube and look at what other people are doing, get some ideas or uh, kind of things like that. I've definitely seen some products elevated just through their packaging. Like uh, you can get a luxury feel to a product just by uh, putting it in a really thick cardboard box with matte finish or something that you might not see normally. Yeah, you look at like the MacBook Pro cases, like or anything out. It's just like a white case, but it feels awesome because they, you know, you know how the air slides out when you yep. kind of lift it off. And yep, yep, yep. I'm sure that they designed that deliberately. I heard there's like a room where they test test boxes too, because it's like the first point of sale that everyone gets from their Apple product. Oh, there was definitely the. I know for the iPhone boxes, they tested the friction uh, between the two halves of the box. So when you lift up the top half, it slides down at an even rate when it wants to separate. Like it's pretty ridiculous amount of detail, but you know, at that level, you know, you're selling millions of units, so you definitely want to test it to that point. Exactly, yeah, and I guess the other thing too is like when you think of physical products, it's like a sensory thing too, right? It's like yep. you like sight, you know, nose, smell, touch. Like they could just look at how the f- box opens and you feel the air getting squeezed out. It's like oh, like it feels like a spaceship <laughs> that's getting opened right. too. So yeah, so I guess like you know, I guess like if you're starting out, you don't really think of this, but I feel like as you get more experience, you start to consider all the different angles that go into actually like product packaging and everything too. So, so talk about fulfillment a little bit. Are you shipping these products to the states to sell in Amazon, or are you using some other fulfillment centers? Yeah, so I have a friend in Chicago that's going to fulfill them for me, just because at 150 orders, like no third party was willing to take me. So, yep, it's kind of like you know where like they want like say you know. 200 units a month for them to make sense because they charge usually like two dollars 
to three dollars per unit pack and pack fee. Right. Exactly. So, so when you, when you go to three PL, for those that don't know, it's basically a warehouse that. Uh, stores the product for you, packages it for you, and mails it for you to the end customer. So you don't actually have to go rent your own warehouse, right? And so what they do is they'll charge you a monthly maintenance fee, maybe you know forty to seventy bucks, somewhere in between, and they'll also charge you a pick and pack fee, uh, which is basically when someone goes to the carton, picks one of your products out, you know, and then ships it to the customer, right? And there's also a lot of other things like, do you want them to do returns? Do you want them to do custom wholesale? Like there's all these myriads of different things. Basically, they're doing it for you, and so what ha- what comes with that is fees, right? So right. If you're selling like a $10 product and you're paying $2 in fulfillment fees, like you, know, you got to look at kind of your margins a little bit too. And for them, you know, if they're not, if you're not doing much volume, it doesn't make sense for them to keep you as a customer because they have a maintenance cost of staff and everything that goes into it too. So I guess for me, my friend was lucky. He lives close to a USPS station and he has like a warehouse already. We're kind of he's in the music business. He kind of has records that he does this for friends too, where you know they have like some sales a month, and he just happily sends it out for them too. But it's not at the level where he's sending like you know thirty packages a day, and sure. it's kind of overwhelming him too. And yeah. for me, you know, I'm just starting out too, so it's nothing like that. Whereas like I have the flexibility to move to a real center when I'm actually at that level too, or when he starts complaining that he doesn't want to send them for me anymore. <laughs> right? Are you having to compensate him at all? Yeah, so he doesn't charge me storage, which is cool. He doesn't charge me receiving. And so normally most warehouses, um, you know, when you send them a truck full of boxes, there's they got to unpack it, catalog it. Like he, this guy will just do it for me because he's a friend, and he'll just charge me like I think two dollars per unit to send out. So like it's, it's nice. easily a no brainer at this stage of the at, the at this stage of the game. Yeah, especially the storage fees because they're based on volume, right? And so you're going to end up paying a ton of storage fees if your product doesn't move as fast as you thought it was going to. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, what they yeah, basically they call that long-term storage fees. I think Amazon and most 3PLs have it. It's just if you have a product that's not moving, they're going to be like, hey, we got to charge you more or kind of get out of here, basically is what they're saying. Right, yeah. They want the only their best customers. Yeah, have you fulfilled any orders yet? Uh, no, we're still in ship production right now. Okay. Uh, we're about to ship, I think, in mid-October. Okay. So uh, still figure out the packaging right now, at least at, as of you know late August when we're recording this. But the, we're on track to ship them out by like early December is the goal. Awesome. No, that's really exciting. Congrats on getting all of that going, by the way. That's a huge process to go through, but it must be very validating to go from the beginning to end and see your, quote, your baby basically ready to go. Yeah, I think part of it is also like if you're going the crowdfunding route is like be realistic with how long shipping takes. Like to get, so like I guess shipping from, you know, between the world, there's like LCL, FCL, right? I don't want to like overwhelm people, but basically if you can't fill a full container, you got to share it with other people. Right. Right. And so what happens is sometimes the container won't be full right away. You got to wait for other people to put their stuff in the container and then it goes yep. to the to the port and then it's going the boat and they got to take the boat to the other port. It's got to get off the port. You know, they got to unload that, open, figure out whose box is to, put on a truck and they go to the warehouse. Like, this, like that stuff probably takes like two months. Like and if you get delayed, it's probably even longer. If you get a customs inspections, like there's ways, plenty of ways that you can screw. So what I see is a lot of campaigns are like, hey, you know, we're gonna raise money in June and we'll ship it in like September. I mean, unless you already had the money to make it or you already had pre-made it, you're just doing it for PR. Right. I think usually like six six months, like minimum, for most things is kind of like my rule now. That's a really good point too. Uh, the products that I went in that were shipped from abroad, I ordered a 20 foot container worth. Precisely because of what you said, because there's so much delay in packing a container and unpacking it. And honestly, the fees that you pay when you have less than a container load are just huge. It's almost cheaper to pay for the entire container than it is to pay for less than one. 
Yeah, I think there's a certain level. Someone said is like if you have a hundred kilos. Uh, or like some certain cubic meter, like it's basically just have a half container empty, and it's like the same price, if not cheaper than sharing it with someone too. So, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but you gotta like research. Like, just get a couple quotes from forwarders, and then ask them how much it is to get your own container, and then you'll get a quick idea too. So, I guess like this, this is why like packaging is a bit tricky because depending on your end packaging, like you need to know your cubic volume to get the right estimate for the quote. So it's like kind of like it's a whole nother dimension of besides making your product is like getting it to and there the most efficient way as possible while having your, you know, your brand aesthetics and like the retail angle and all that stuff too. Right. So yeah. How many fit on like a pallet? thing to like <laughs> make physical products. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So as we get to the end of the show, you know, I always ask people, you know, do you have a tool or a book or something that's helped you along the way that you'd like to share with everybody? Oh, a book. Uh, hmm, that's a good one. Have a couple. Uh, I would say uh, All Marketers Are Liars by Seth Godin is the good one because that was the one that really taught me that, you know, when you sell, like what I'm selling, I sell blankets, but that's not what I'm really selling. Like, if you think about it, the blanket, you could get a blanket anywhere, right? But what I'm selling is a chance for someone that loves animals to kind of validate that story in their head on a very like kind of psychological level. And mm-hmm. it kind of sounds a little wonky when I say that is because like in the book, he says, you know, everyone has certain beliefs that they're, you know, grow up with. Right. So like in the U S you have certain beliefs about this, certain things about that Asia, there's different cultural things. And so that basically goes into the way you see your frame in the world, right? how you talk to people, how you react to things. And so it's like, it's about a lot, a lot of that book talks about understanding people and knowing how they see the world and fitting your story, whether that's marketing or product into that too. And that was probably like the biggest eye opener for me when I started this project was that, you know, my most, the important thing I'm telling is not blankets in the sense that more than the customer wants to feel like they're helping a shelter animal. Like that's really what I'm giving them an opportunity to do, not really to buy a blanket and it, on like a deep level too. So hope that makes sense. No, no, that's absolutely true. And sometimes people don't really look at the end goal for the consumer Consumer doesn't want to buy a product. They want to have a problem that's solved for them or a need that's met. And the other thing too is that is that you look at like all the world, everything we have is like we pretty much have everything we need in the sense that like, you know, you can have basic food, rice and beans is like, you know, the bare minimum. But then it's like, like well, how do you make people want something? And that's like kind of like another thing to learn also. And I think this book kind of gives a good roadmap of, you know, understanding people, groups of people, tribes of people and like figuring out their worldview and kind of delivering a story around that then having a product that fits into that story so that they can tell more people and kind of do all that stuff too. Great tip. So I'm going to leave a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. One last tip for you. Cool. So if you, if you were talking to your younger self or if you had a younger brother or sister that was looking to get into this, what was the one tip that you'd give them to kind of take the next step or to keep going in their journey? Yeah, I would say uh, take some time, figure out who you are, really are out, you know, know what you're good at, know what you aren't good at, and be willing to put in the work. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you may hear people with stories like that, but uh, you know, it's probably going to be a grind for you and most people. Well, like you said, there's uh, just the tip of the iceberg and there's all this work that's gone into making it a success, so don't lose hope. Yep. Great tips. So, Terry, if someone wanted to go and buy a blanket or to find out more about what you do, where is the best place to go? 
Sure. If they want to check out our website, you can go to foreverhomeblankets.com. Uh, Forever Home Blankets, pretty easy to spell. Or you can follow us on Instagram and on YouTube soon because I'm actually starting a video blog where I'm documenting what it's like to be a rescue volunteer to hopefully inspire more people to kind of get involved, whether it's just you know one hour a week, being a foster home, donating, things like that. Because I think that's what really will help make things better. It's not just me selling blankets, but getting other people to get involved with this too. Very good idea. That's awesome that you're doing this for other animals. So con- congrats again on all your success and everything and for doing the work that you do. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks again for being so transparent. Again, thanks for coming and I, I wish you all the best. All right, cool. Thanks for having me and I guess I'll catch up with you again soon. And that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on the productstartup.com slash episode 24. Join me next time as I speak with Robson Splain, who created the ProRise Seed Assist. Robson is an industrial designer who has over 30 years' experience in design with 70 national patents, 20 international patents to his name. And during the interview, we talk about how he developed the ProRise Seed Assist, allowing senior citizens, wounded veterans, and post-surgical individuals to rise from their seats independently. So again, tune in next week to hear that episode. And if you found this episode valuable and you want to see more like it or you want to see something a bit different, please don't hesitate to send me an email or leave a review on iTunes by going to theproductstartup.com slash review. Thanks again, everybody, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.